0: Section 22 of The Queen of Hearts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Queen of Hearts by Wilkie Collins. Brother Griffith's Story of Mad Moncton, Chapter 6, Part 2. We were sighted long before nightfall by a trading vessel, were taken on board, and landed at Cartagena in Spain. Alfred never held up his head, and never once spoke to me of his own accord, the whole time we were at sea in the merchantman. I observed, however, with alarm, that he talked often and incoherently to himself, constantly muttering the lines of the old prophecy constantly referring to the fatal place that was empty in Wincott Vault, constantly repeating in broken accents which it affected me inexpressibly to hear the name of the poor girl who was awaiting his return to England. Nor were these the only causes for the apprehension that I now felt on his account. Toward the end of our voyage he began to suffer from alternations of fever-fits and shivering-fits, which I ignorantly imagined to be attacks of ague. I was soon undeceived. We had hardly been a day on shore before he became so much worse that I secured the best medical assistance Cartagena could afford. For a day or two the doctors differed, as usual, about the nature of his complaint. But ere long alarming symptoms displayed themselves, the medical men declared that his life was in danger and told me that his disease was brain fever shocked and grieved as i was i hardly knew how to act at first under the fresh responsibility now laid upon me ultimately i decided on writing to the old priest who had been alfred's tutor and who as i knew still resided at wincott abbey i told this gentleman all that had happened begged him to break my melancholy news as gently as possible to miss elmsley and assured him of my resolution to remain with monckton to the last after i had dispatched my letter and had sent to gibraltar to secure the best english medical advice that could be obtained i felt that i had done my best and that nothing remained but to wait and hope Many a sad and anxious hour did I pass by my poor friend's bedside. Many a time did I doubt whether I had done right in giving any encouragement to his delusion. The reasons for doing so, which had suggested themselves to me after my first interview with him, seemed, however, on reflection, to be valid reasons still. The only way of hastening his return to England and to Miss Elmsley who was pining for that return, was the way I had taken. It was not my fault that a disaster which no man could foresee had overthrown all his projects and all mine. But now that the calamity had happened and was irretrievable, how in the event of his physical recovery was his moral malady to be combated? When I reflected on the hereditary taint in his medical organization, on that first childish fright of Stephen Monckton from which he had never recovered, on the perilously secluded life that he had led at the Abbey, and on his firm persuasion of the reality of the apparition by which he believed himself to be constantly followed, I confess I despaired of shaking his superstitious faith in every word and line of the old family prophecy. If the series of striking coincidences which appeared to attest its truth had made a strong and lasting impression on me, and this was assuredly the case, how could I wonder that they had produced the effect of absolute conviction on his mind, constituted as it was? If I argued with him, and he answered me, how could I rejoin? If he said, The prophecy points at the last of the family, I am the last of the family. The prophecy mentions an empty place in Wincott Vault. There is such an empty place there at this moment. On the faith of the prophecy, I told you that Stephen Monkton's body was unburied, and you found that it was unburied. If he said this, what use would it be for me to reply, These are only strange coincidences, after all. The more I thought of the task that lay before me, if he recovered, the more I felt inclined to despond. The oftener the English physician who attended on him said to me, He may get the better of the fever, but he has a fixed idea which never leaves him night or day, which has unsettled his reason, and which will end in killing him, unless you or some of his friends can remove it. The oftener I heard this, the more acutely I felt my own powerlessness, the more I shrank from every idea that was connected with the hopeless future. I had only expected to receive my answer from Wincott in the shape of a letter. It was consequently a great surprise, as well as a great relief, to be informed one day that two gentlemen wished to speak with me, and to find that of these two gentlemen the first was the old priest and the second a male relative of mrs elmsley just before their arrival the fever symptoms had disappeared and alfred had been pronounced out of danger both the priest and his companion were eager to know when the sufferer would be strong enough to travel they had come to cartagena expressly to take him home with them and felt far more hopeful than i did of the restorative effects of his native air After all the questions connected with the first important point of the journey to England had been asked and answered, I ventured to make some inquiries after Miss Elmsley. Her relative informed me that she was suffering both in body and in mind from excess of anxiety on Alfred's account. They had been obliged to deceive her as to the dangerous nature of his illness in order to deter her from accompanying the priest and her relation on their mission to Spain. Slowly and imperfectly, as the weeks wore on, Alfred regained something of his former physical strength, but no alteration appeared in his illness as it affected his mind. From the very first day of his advance toward recovery, it had been discovered that the brain fever had exercised the strangest influence over his faculties of memory. All recollection of recent events was gone from him. Everything connected with Naples, with me, with his journey to Italy, had dropped in some mysterious manner entirely out of his remembrance. So completely had all late circumstances passed from his memory that, though he recognized the old priest and his own servant easily on the first days of his convalescence he never recognized me but regarded me with such a wistful doubting expression that i felt inexpressibly pained when i approached his bedside all his questions were about miss elmsley and wincott abbey and all his talk referred to the period when his father was yet alive The doctors augured good rather than ill from this loss of memory of recent incidents, saying that it would turn out to be temporary, and that it answered the first great healing purpose of keeping his mind at ease. I tried to believe them, tried to feel as sanguine when the day came for his departure as the old friends felt who were taking him home. But the effort was too much for me. A foreboding that I should never see him again oppressed my heart, and the tears came into my eyes as I saw the worn figure of my poor friend half-helped, half-lifted, into the travelling carriage, and borne away gently on the road toward home. He had never recognised me, and the doctors had begged that I would give him, for some time to come, as few opportunities as possible of doing so but for this request I should have accompanied him to England. As it was, nothing better remained for me to do than to change the scene and recruit as best I could my energies of body and mind, depressed of late by much watching and anxiety. The famous cities of Spain were not new to me, but I visited them again and revived old impressions of the Alhambra and Madrid. Once or twice I thought of making a pilgrimage to the East, but late events had sobered and altered me. That yearning, unsatisfied feeling, which we call homesickness, began to prey upon my heart, and I resolved to return to England. I went back by way of Paris, having settled with the priest that he should write to me at my banker's there as soon as he could after Alfred had returned to Wincott. If I had gone to the East, the letter would have been forwarded to me. I wrote to prevent this, and on my arrival at Paris, stopped at the banker's before I went to my hotel. The moment the letter was put into my hands, the black border and the envelope told me the worst. He was dead. There was but one consolation. He had died calmly, almost happily, without once referring to those fatal chances which had wrought the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy. My beloved pupil, the old priest wrote, seemed to rally a little the first few days after his return, but he gained no real strength, and soon suffered a slight relapse of fever. After this he sank gradually and gently, day by day, and so departed from us on the last dread journey. Miss Elmsley, who knows that I am writing this, desires me to express her deep and lasting gratitude for all your kindness to Alfred. She told me when we brought him back that she had waited for him as his promised wife, and that she would nurse him now as a wife should, and she never left him. His face was turned toward her, his hand was clasped in hers when he died. It will console you to know that he never mentioned events at Naples or the shipwreck that followed them, from the day of his return to the day of his death. Three days after reading the letter I was at Wincott and heard all the details of Alfred's last moments from the priest. I felt a shock which it would not be very easy for me to analyze or explain, when I heard that he had been buried, at his own desire, in the fatal abbey vault. The priest took me down to see the place, a grim, cold, subterranean building, with a low roof supported on heavy Saxon arches. Narrow niches, with the ends only of coffins visible within them, ran down each side of the vault, The nails and silver ornaments flashed here and there as my companion moved past them with a lamp in his hand. At the lower end of the place he stopped, pointed to a niche, and said, He lies there, between his father and mother. I looked a little further on and saw what appeared at first like a long dark tunnel. That is only an empty niche, said the priest, following me, If the body of Mr. Stephen Monckton had been brought to Wincott, his coffin would have been placed there. A chill came over me, and a sense of dread which I am ashamed of having felt now, but which I could not combat then. The blessed light of day was pouring down gaily at the other end of the vault through the open door. I turned my back on the empty niche, and hurried into the sunlight and the fresh air. As I walked across the grass glade leading down to the vault, I heard the rustle of a woman's dress behind me, and turning round saw a young lady advancing, clad in deep mourning. Her sweet, sad face, her manner as she held out her hand, told me who it was in an instant. "'I heard that you were here,' she said, "'and I wished—' Her voice faltered a little. My heart ached as I saw how her lip trembled, but before I could say anything she recovered herself and went on. I wish to take your hand and thank you for your brotherly kindness to Alfred, and I wanted to tell you that I am sure in all you did you acted tenderly and considerately for the best. Perhaps you may be soon going away from home again, and we may not meet any more. I shall never, never forget that you were kind to him when he wanted a friend, and that you have the greatest claim of any one on earth to be gratefully remembered in my thoughts as long as I live. The inexpressible tenderness of her voice, trembling a little all the while she spoke, the pale beauty of her face, the artless candor in her sad, quiet eyes, so affected me that I could not trust myself to answer her at first, except by gesture. Before I recovered my voice she had given me her hand once more, and had left me. I never saw her again. The chances and changes of life kept us apart. When I last heard of her, years and years ago, she was faithful to the memory of the dead, and was Ada Elmsley still, for Alfred Monckton's sake. THE FIFTH DAY. STILL CLOUDY, BUT NO RAIN TO KEEP OUR YOUNG LADY INDOORS. THE PAPER AS USUAL WITHOUT INTEREST TO ME. TODAY OWEN ACTUALLY VANQUISHED HIS DIFFICULTIES AND FINISHED HIS STORY. I NUMBERED IT EIGHT AND THREW THE CORRESPONDING NUMBER, AS I HAD DONE THE DAY BEFORE IN MORGAN'S CASE, INTO THE CHINA BOWL. Although I could discover no direct evidence against her, I strongly suspected the Queen of Hearts of tampering with the lots on the fifth evening to irritate Morgan by making it his turn to read again, after the shortest possible interval of repose. However that might be, the number drawn was certainly seven, and the story to be read was consequently the story which my brother had finished only two days before. If I had not known that it was part of Morgan's character always to do exactly the reverse of what might be expected from him, I should have been surprised at the extraordinary docility he exhibited the moment his manuscript was placed in his hands. My turn again, he said, how very satisfactory! I was anxious to escape from this absurd position of mine as soon as possible, and here is the opportunity most considerately put into my hands. Look out, all of you. I won't waste another moment. I mean to begin instantly. Do tell me, interposed Jessie mischievously, shall I be very much interested to-night? Not you, retorted Morgan. You will be very much frightened instead. Your hair is uncommonly smooth at the present moment but it will be all standing on end before I've done. Don't blame me, miss, if you are an object when you go to bed to-night. With this curious introductory speech he began to read. I was obliged to interrupt him to say the few words of explanation which the story needed. Before my brother begins, I said, It may be as well to mention that he is himself the doctor who is supposed to relate this narrative. The events happened at a time of his life when he had left London, and had established himself in medical practice in one of our large northern towns. With that brief explanation I apologized for interrupting the reader, and Morgan began once more. End of section 22. Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.